Welcome to Blues To Do Podcast number four, July 26, 2018. My name is Marley Walker. we got a great show planned for you. First, I want to thank our sponsor, Suquamish Casino and Resort, presenting Robert Cray, Sunday, July 29th. You can find out more at clearwatercasino.com. We've got a show that features an interview from 2010 that we did backstage at Jazz Alley in Seattle with Emilio Castillo and Doc Kupka, both founding members of Tower of Power. The live recording segments that we feature in between the interview are all from the 40th anniversary at the Fillmore Auditorium, the concert they did in 2008 with interviews and reuniting some of the former members of Tower of Power plus the original members and special guests, all done in 2008, that double disc has a DVD in it as well. Uh, the new CD that they just put out, they're touring with this year in their 50th anniversary. Oh my goodness, it has been 10 years. So they have new material and they're on tour. Never stop. Tower of Power. Right, we're going to hear from that interview shortly. Also want to remind you to tell your friends about the Blues To Do podcast. It is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at bluestodo.com. We have sponsorship availability if you're interested or if you know anyone that is interested in sponsorship. We also have a Blues To Do calendar coming up later in the show, so stay tuned. It is the Blues To Do podcast. My name is Marty Walker. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy. Did you grow up with blues in your background and then gravitate to funk? Or was there any awareness of how blues was part of that foundation? Um... You know, when we were teenagers and we, and we learned a little bit before Doc was in the band, it was just me and Rocco and my brother and uh, Jody Lopez. We, we, you know, we started learning playing rock and roll. You know, and then uh, shortly after that was when the Fillmore sort of happened. And Paul Butterfield Blues Band became very popular. And so we got on a blues kick for about six months. And we played blues for like six months. And uh, But, you know, we just... Uh, wasn't our thing, sure. you know. And then right after that, we saw this band called the Spiders, which was a really tight soul band that played uh, soul covers, but they were just extremely exciting band, and very tight. And we, we were just amazed by them, so we got into soul music. And very shortly after that, we saw Sly and the Family Stone, and the, uh, the energy and entertainment factor of his performances attracted us. So we just decided that that's our thing. And, uh, so we never really went back to blues. I mean, of course, I played blues over the years with you know, different groups and stuff. I, I did. I actually produced a, a, a Miklo commercial with Robert Cray one time. It's not about fluke. We did the night time at the right time. And, uh, and we know our horns played on it. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've sat in with different blues acts here and there. But, you know, mainly our thing is soul. We like soul. What a capital S, y'all say Solo With a capital S What kind of music tell me Sweet soul music That's the best I think they're ready Solo You know, when we started up, Doc was very much into uh, Buddy Guy. He used to tell me about uh, Buddy Guy playing at the New Orleans house in Berkeley. And also uh, James Cotton, right? Junior Wells. Wells, yeah. So you got your blues roots. Yeah, but I, I came from a, a Broadway show music, uh, um, you know, and then pop music on the radio too. Um, the 
I can remember as a kid, I used to really like that song, Searching uh, Coasters. I liked uh, uh, Turn On Your Love Life by Bobby Blue Band and, and some James Brown stuff. But when I really went into art being a big way was when Otis Redding and Sam and Dave happened. So when, and that was right before I joined the band. So when I was learning to play Barry, I got into those guys. Sure. Now, plus, I remember when he used to tell me about Buddy Guy, what really moved him about Buddy Guy was the performance, not so much that he, he dug blues. I mean, Doc was not so much a blues lover, but he, he dug, because Buddy Guy was very much a showman. Show, you know, all the way. He was telling is. me that uh, he had this cord that was really long, and, and that he drove up one time to the New Orleans house, and Buddy Guy was out at University Avenue in Berkeley, just playing on the street, you know. The, the audience in the New Orleans house had followed him out, and, to come back in, so it was all—it was the entertainment thing that, that yeah. you're talking about, buddy. Yeah. Well, put on a great show. Always, Tom yeah. Power has a great reputation for that. So you had to learn that from somebody. And yeah, I mean, not all bands are like that. You know, some bands are just about you know, we play our music, and, you know, and they have a way of sort of wowing the crowd doing that. But we've always sort of had that entertainment factor. Sure. You know, we like to entertain people, you know, get them excited, make a, an exciting live show like James Brown. Slide yeah. Family Stone, or yeah. one of those soul acts, or Sam and Dave, and it was always about the show. Yeah, inspired music. Yes, the emotional, you know, stir your emotions. Well, and Jimi Hendrix was a blues man, but he also learned the showman stuff. Yes. Uh, Guitar Shorty actually was one of his influences, a brother-in-law uh, and a relative. And he was from here, right, Jimmy? Yes. Yeah. Yes, we definitely have our... That was our first big major rock concert that we ever played. We opened for Jimi Hendrix at the uh, Burton Community. Oh, what was that like? It was scary. We were just a bunch of you know teenagers scared out of our wits. We never played to that big an audience, and he made us play with the lights on as people were walking in uh, in front of the curtain. We couldn't even set up on the stage proper. We had to set up in front of the curtain. And it was you know it was sort of embarrassing to tell you the truth. And I remember my manager Rob Barnett just kept being infuriated. You know, he went to Bill Graham, who was the promoter, and, and, and at that time, Bill Graham had signed us, we were with his label, and Ron was just yelling at him, so, you know, I don't care, you know, that, that nobody knows them, and that there are a bunch of kids, that's not respectful, that was wrong, you know, and Bill Graham, Bill Graham told him, no, you're absolutely right, Jimmy made me do it, and he said, you know, I'll make it up to you, and he gave us another concert. Okay, after that. okay. Through, through the years, but uh, we're pretty much all clean now. 
some man rules at this point after doing this for 40 plus years. Uh, you don't share those, I, are you? <laughs> yeah, as far as band rules, you know, I, I hire people that live right and have morals and, uh, you know, uh, are respectful people. That's the type I associate with. And I started doing that in the 80s. You know, I just, even though I was a raging drug addict alcoholic back then, I just realized at that point, better not hire people like myself. <laughs> and then I eventually sobered up and it, it just, it was a habit. I, mean, I, I just started hiring people that, you know, lived right. Therefore, you know, it takes a lot of love to get through stuff like that. It does, you know. Uh, I mean, I was joking with you about, you know, we always get along, and obviously, you know, we we're just like a family, you know. And, uh, we have our little dysfunctions and our little uh, upheavals. Uh, but I will say this: uh, all the guys are uh, mature and close uh, in a way that we always work through it. It's never the type of thing where there's a big blow up and people walk out or. Not. Is there one guy in the band that's always aware of, hey, you were playing flat or you were singing sharp? I mean, is there one guy that has an ear that's... Yeah, that's me. That's the old <laughs> guy? <laughs> yeah, not so much you're playing flat or you're playing sharp, but uh, uh, I'm the guy that picks out, you know, if somebody's missing something. Like, like for instance, Mick Gillette's back in the band. Right. He's been out of the band 25 years. That's a big deal. So there's a part that he, he misses every night in Funkifies. We go, ba-ba-da, ba-ba-da. Bop, and that bop is a unison concert D, and he keeps on playing the minor third, you know. And so I just keep telling him every day, and then he curses, you know. Dun -dun -dun, you know and, go, and he, you know, he says, how come you don't tell me before? And I go, I can't, I'm playing, you know. Right, right, <laughs> but, you know, that's that's kind of what I do. I'm, I'm always performing, but I'm kind of, you know, listening, and, you know, if somebody's uh, in some way not playing in the pocket on something, or, uh, or there's something about the feel of something, or if they're just... Playing the wrong note. He has good time, 
And when I, when I tell my wife that, she looks at me like I'm talking Japanese, yeah. Because it's hard to tell somebody that doesn't understand that. But, you know, there's only a certain segment of the public that uh, sort of knows what that stuff is. And they usually uh, stay in the business 42 years and play together. <laughs> now, when did you both know when you had the gift? Doc, tell me first. When did you know you had something that worked in this music business and you had to do something with it? Um, and when was it? September 13th. <laughs> but no, I, um, set up, set up. I just, I knew that uh, I was interested, I had a passion for doing music, and, and I knew I wanted to write songs, too. I didn't have any idea how to go about it, but like I, I walked down the street singing melodies and, you know, trying to get stuff. And, um, but uh, I think when I knew that, um, that I had a future in, in music was, I think when we did the, the show with Aretha Franklin at the Fillmore, that uh, it, it was a high profile show and we did good, real good, you know, and uh, um, I just, I knew that uh, that uh, I was doing what I was meant to do and, and that uh, I did well enough that I could continue to do it. And, I mean, I had no idea at the time, there's still another uh, good 15 plus years of getting too loaded and, you know, having alcohol problem and all that, that kind of stuff that I didn't, wasn't able to deal with that quite yet, but I, I knew as a, as a musician that at that point that it was going to be good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you found a great pocket to be in. Tell me about your uh, early years. What what light went on and you went, ding, okay, I'm here. You know, uh, I have a, a kind of a unique uh, path the way I came into music. I. I was not one of these people that, you know, started to play an instrument and took many lessons and practiced for hours and hours and hours for many, many years and joined the band. We, we couldn't even play, and I've had a band ever since. So I've been a band leader, literally, from the first moment I owned, owned an instrument, okay. <laughs> you know. And uh, the reason I got into music was because uh, I got caught stealing a t-shirt. And my dad took me to the store and made me apologize to the manager. He gave me a notebook. He said, go to your room, fill this notebook out with why you're never going to steal again as long as you live. And while you're in there, you better think of something that's going to keep you off the street or you're never coming out of that room again. You know? okay. And my, uh, my friend had just got back from a vacation in Mexico and he had a guitar. And the Beatles had just come out. And we said, uh, it was me and my brother. You know? We both got caught. You know? We said, we want to play music, Dad. And he goes, get in the car. <laughs> Took us right to the music store and he said, anything you want. Wow. And uh, I pointed to the sax, my brother pointed to the drums, and I, I literally never ever gave it another thought. I mean, I knew from that moment, I mean, it just, I never sat around after that ever and went, what am I going to do? Maybe, am I going to do something else? Will I sell stuff? Will I, never, that thought never, I never had to go through that. I saw my brothers in later years go through that, you know, like changing careers and wondering what they're going to do and how come, you know, I get to do what I have a passion for but they got to do this thing that they hate and, you know, struggling, that, that struggle that most people go through. I never had to do that. You know, I never had to think to myself, do I have a career in this business? Because quite frankly, it didn't matter whether I thought that or not because it was all I was going to do no matter what. You would have been lousy at anything else. Yeah, I, I, could, I could have been lousy for a lifetime. <laughs> I'd still be doing it. You know? Yeah. I loved it, and I still do. 
I'm, that's a powerful story about your dad. I, I'm so um, proud of him as a parent for yeah, being you know, tuned right into you and laying the line down and telling you to write down in that book. That's a great story. Yeah, he, he was something else. He, uh, he made about five major decisions in my life that had he not made those five decisions, my life could have taken a tremendously different course. You know, he, he made that decision uh, you know, to get me into music. He told me to hire him. Oh, really? My dad never interfered with the band. I had already been a band leader for about you know, three and a half years uh, by the time I met him, three and a half, four years. And, uh, and I gave him an audition and he came in. While he was auditioning, my dad walked out and watched. He never interfered with the band. But you know, when the song ended, he goes, Mimi, come in the kitchen. You know, they, my nickname is Mimi. You know. Come in the kitchen. You know, and I thought, you know, man, what happened? I'm in trouble. You know, I go in there, you know, what's, what's happening? And he goes, uh, hire this guy. He's got something. You know, and I went, he does, huh? You know, and I went out, told all the guys. By, by that point, the guys loved him. At first, they were all angry because they didn't want me to invite the horn players, you know. So when he first came, they, they didn't really, they weren't too happy about it. But after he played a couple of songs, they were digging it. So when I came out and I said, uh, he's in the band, and the others went, yeah, <laughs> you know, and that was it. So, you know, that's another thing my dad did. My, my dad also, when the draft was happening, you know, for Vietnam, uh, my number was really high, you know, and I, I, uh, I had never registered for the draft, you know, because there, there was no possible way I could see myself going in the jungle and killing anybody, you know. And, and I just never registered it. I was like 19, a little over 19 years old, and I started getting scared and worried. And um, I went to my father and I said, uh, you know, Dad, I'm kind of worried about uh, war. And he goes, what do you mean? Like, well, you know, I, I haven't signed up for the draft. I hear that they're busting draft evaders. And I go, uh, you know, my number is really high, right on the front page of the newspaper. Everybody checked their number to see where, and I was way up there, so I'd have been in, you know. And I said, you know, I don't know what to do. And he goes, have you gotten any communication from the service? I go, no. And he goes, nothing. From the Army, Navy, Air Force, nothing. I go, no. He goes, you haven't heard anything from them. I go, no. He goes, don't worry about it. They probably think you're a girl. <laughs> and I went, and he goes, don't worry about it. Boy, and, I, and I never thought about it again, you know. And then... Uh, you know, sort of below the surface, I was kind of like, you know, how long is this going to last? Will I be busted? And then, uh, you know, a few years after that, uh, Nixon pardoned everybody that had gone, you know, to Canada, you know, because you know, the war was a farce. I mean, and uh, so at that point, I was home you free, you know. But I mean, that, you know, had my dad not told me that, you know, yeah, yeah. my life would be what so different. Wow. So yeah, he. He's kind of an amazing dude. Pretty sharp. Pretty sharp to be thinking that way. I guess. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how sharp he was, but he did make some really major decisions in my life that changed my life.
They would love to have horns in their band. You, however, have focused on horns and had tremendous success. So what made you do that, and how do you tell other people to do this when it's tough? It's tough hiring horn players for a band when they... Yeah, you know, um, when, we, when we were uh, coming up, we never thought about could we afford this. Or could we, right, just, right. Uh, we just knew we were going to play music and we were going to make it sound the way we wanted it to sound and we were going to do it the way we were going to do it and we just did. And we were broke, and, uh, but we did it anyway. I mean, you, you can be broke and do what you want or you can be broke and wish you were doing what you want, you know. So you know, I, even though it's a different world now, I think the major difference between people nowadays, young people nowadays, and the way we were back then, is that young people now know that you know, you can get in this business and have 18 semi-trucks and 40 trusses and fly across the stadium, you know, and come up out of smoke and, you know, have 80 dancers and, you know, make a gazillion dollars per tour, you know. Uh, they know that, you know, all that is sort of in the mix. We, we, we didn't think like that. All we knew was that being in the band, man, it's like the coolest thing, you know. It's, it's so much fun, you know. We just love music, you know, and that's why we did it. But now they know all about the whole corporate rock thing, you know, and uh, so they're a little handicapped in that way, you know. And also, uh, you know, the youth of today is a little more driven uh, material-wise, you know. Sure. So the idea of starting a band and saying I'm going to have five horns, you know, I mean, they, they tend to think about it now. We just didn't. Well, they're sampling your records to get the horns. I mean, <laughs> let's be realistic. They're 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 playing records. Do not have a live music experiences like you and I. My experience, though, is that human beings, they like to, to be moved by other human beings. I agree. I think the response from uh, uh, you know, live musicians playing uh, to an audience is, uh, can't be duplicated by tapes or loops or any of that stuff. The energy, the vibrations. That's not to say that you can't make a great show having that stuff in it, but, you know, uh, there's something to be said for human beings playing for human beings. You know? right, on, right on. Well, that's what the blues is all about. It's real music for real people. Yeah. Right now, let's see how many laws we can break tonight. enjoying this interview with Emilio Castillo and Doc Kupka from Tower of Power. We did this at Jazz Alley Backstage 2010. Uh, I want to thank John Gullah. My name is Marley Walker. We did that together for Blues To Do TV. Now we're excerpting that interview for Blues To Do Podcast, and this is for July 26, 2018. I hope you're enjoying this. Uh, we also are featuring some live recording segments from the 40th anniversary of the Fillmore Auditorium. Original members, special guests, former members, and uh, yeah, exciting stuff, all done in 2008. The Blues To Do podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at bluestodo.com. Please tell your friends about it. We also want to thank our sponsor again, Suquamish Casino and Resort, presenting Robert Cray, Sunday, July 29th, clearwatercasino.com for more information. 
has your awareness of, of racism in America, how does that how does that ever play a role in music? Well, the, the one incident that we always talk about is you know, we, we got hired at the Sugar Shack in Boston, and that was like the premier soul nightclub in Boston. That was like doing the 20 Grand Club in Detroit or something. You know, that's where the Temptations played and, you know, the Four Tops, all the Motown acts, and just all the soul acts played the Sugar Shack in Boston. And it was in the Roxbury District, which is, you know, like Harlem or the Fillmore District in San Francisco. It's the black area of Boston, Roxbury. And we got hired there because You're Still Young Man was a major league soul smash, you know. And the guy, uh, I think his name was Rudy Underweiser, he hired us. And, uh, and shortly uh, before we were supposed to go, uh, the gig was canceled, you know. And uh, we were bummed up, man. We wanted to play the Sugar Shack, you know. That was like a, a feather in our cap, you know, that we could go there as a white soul band. And I mean, mostly white. We had a couple of uh, African Americans, but, you know, mostly we were a white band. Wanted to play there, you know. And so when we got to Boston the next time, we went over there, <laughs> you know, and uh, we sort of went up to the door and cool the game was playing, you know. Well, it's cool, it's cool the game. So uh, we went to the door and I asked for the owner, you know. And this guy comes up and it's a white guy, <laughs> a Jewish guy, we're getting away. And um, and I, I told him what we were. He goes, Oh my God, he's coming. <laughs> he takes us in, and I go, uh, you know. What happened to our gig here? Man? We really wanted to play here. And he goes, Yeah, he goes, Man, he says, uh, We wanted you too. He goes, Then I got the photo. Because <laughs> I couldn't put you in here. We'd have a riot. You know? And I go, What year was this? This was uh, 72. 72. 72. And I was like, uh, What are you talking about? We play all the time for mixed audiences. You know, play black clubs. And we had been playing black clubs in the Bay Area. You know, and, uh, when they were trouble? So we just never thought about it. Because sure. in Oakland, you know, right. on the east side of the bay, you know, like San Francisco was all the flower power and the hippies and all that. But in the east bay, it was a more, you know, urban, blue collar, you know, and, and soul music was the thing. You know, Sly was a disc jockey and uh, it was very popular music. I mean, that's what everybody listened to, you know. And, and there were a lot of white soul bands there. And we all played, you know, we played Soul City. We were the after hours band at Soul City and, uh, you know, a lot of people played the, uh, the Lucky 13 in Albany. That was a black soul club, after hours club. We played there many times, you know. Do you think because it was West Coast? Possibly. I mean, uh, the consciousness at that time in the Bay Area was definitely uh, a higher consciousness than the rest of the country. They sort of caught up there. And, and Boston, to be sure, uh, was a little more racial at that point in time. In the Bay Area was the Bay Area was like everybody was hanging out with everyone. But you know, the Bay Area was always sort of like that because I remember when I first moved there from Detroit. Uh, you know, I got out there from Detroit. I was uh, 11, and I remember going to the playground, and there was like a Chinese kid, and a Filipino, and a Mexican, and a black, and an Irish, and an Italian, and none of them had two parents. They all were single parents. You know, in Detroit, I never knew anyone that had divorced parents. Nobody. You know, so it was different. And uh, I think Bay Area people, they're just used to that, you know. But in Boston, and on the East Coast, and in the Midwest, places like Detroit, Chicago, you know, you had your Polacks over here, this is the Jewish section, this is where the Russian thought, and Greek over here, this is the Mexican neighborhood, you know, this is the black area, this is where the white trash hillbillies are, everything was like sectioned off, and it was very separate. San Francisco, man, everybody was hanging together. You know, it was scary to me at first, it was, you know, but then, now I can't. 
think of it any other way. Well, it's Saturday night and I'm just hanging out Looking for a place to party So I jump into my ride and I hit the road Cause it's all of a place to go Down to the nightclub Oh, where the women be rotting Ready I'm sitting by the dance floor, checking it out. You're watching the man with the fast feet. He's got the hippest dress and a bad boogaloo and a big old bag of chips down to the nightclub. Oh, listen, you can get what you want and you know how to find it. To the nightclub, oh yeah. We be slick, slick, slick. You have given a lot of people permission to get funky <laughs> that maybe wouldn't have gotten funky without your permission. Can I say that? Do you see people coming out of their skin all the time, Doc? I mean, yeah. I, what I like is uh, someone who's a big fan that's got a friend who's never seen us and had to convince them to come, and uh, apparently we just blow them out of the water. You know, so that happens a lot. Doc. Really that's like a real that. common thing with us. There's a lot of Tower Bar fans that really take pride in bringing new recruits. You know, they'll they'll come to the gig and they'll Emilio. Got eight new ones tonight, you know. Okay, you know. And by the end of the night, you know, they come back, you know, with their eight friends, and their friends are just gushing all over us. Yeah, it's nice. Awesome. Thanks for the kind words. Marley Walker here with the Blues To Do calendar and also at bluestodo.com. It is Centrum, Port Townsend, Jazz Week this week through the 28th, and then Acoustic Blues Week through the 5th of August. Look at my favorite. Charlie's in Olympia has a series of blues going on this summer. Curtis Algato on the 27th. Oh, yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, Robert Cray will be at the Suquamish Clearwater Casino and Resort on Bainbridge Island July 29th. That same weekend, 27, 28, 29, look for Jazz in the Valley at Ellensburg. And the Wine Country Blues Festival with Tajmo, Dirty Dozen Brass Band, John Greyhound Maxwell, all on the 29th at the Chateau Saint-Michel Winery. Could you have too many choices, please? Oh, look out, ZZ Top is sold out for July 30th. Later in August, look for Ben Harper and Charlie Musselwhite, also the Mavericks and Los Lobos and Lake Street Dive. That's a fun new group out there. All right, later in August, we also have the Columbia City Blues Festival in Seattle. In Des Moines, it's the Poverty Bay Blues Festival. Uh, also, the Stilla Guamish Festival of the River happens 11 and 12 of August. August is full of stuff. Porgy and Bess is at McCall Hall with the Seattle Opera. More at the Charlie Series in Olympia with Albert Castiglia and Anthony Gomes. Uh, Willie Nelson and his family come through as well doing their show, their annual show out there at Miramar Park. Big Sky Rhythm and Blues in Montana, Knoxon, Montana, August 3rd through the 5th. Also the Mount Baker Rhythm and Blues Festival, August 3rd through the 5th. The Tulalip Casino features Isley Brothers and the Pointer Sisters both on August 3rd together. August 7th and 8th, Anna Popovich at Jazz Alley. More in August, uh, the Victor Wooten Trio at the Nectar, August 17th. There's Hemp Fest, there's Maceo Parker's 75th birthday jazz out, there's Otis Taylor, Davina and the Vagabonds. The Kent Summer Concerts are terrific Wednesdays and Thursday nights at the Lake. Look for Sam's Funky Nation at the Nectar Lounge August 7th. And, oh my goodness, it's just too much. Uh, 
Check bluestodo.com for more information. Also, at Seattle Art Museum, Double Exposure, and our Reason of the Week for the Blues. Actually, it's the Reason of the Month for the Blues, Double Negative. That's all I need to say. All right, live in the blues until next week. Sponsorship inquiries are welcome for the Blues To Do podcast. It's available on iTunes, at SoundCloud, and at bluestodo.com. And once again, thanks to our sponsors, Suquamish Casino and Resort, presenting Robert Cray, Sunday, July 29th. You can find out more at clearwatercasino.com. All right, enjoy the week. Talk to you next week. It's Marley Walker, living the blues for bluestodo.com.